This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Christchurch Conversations Towards 2030 is a series of five events exploring how the city can achieve its climate goals. Organized by Te Butahi Centre for Architecture and City Making, each event features a range of thought-provoking speakers, from local experts providing the latest information to local businesses and residents sharing their own experiences and actions. The first event, called Building for the Future, focuses on reducing the city's building-related greenhouse gas emissions. Part 3 starts with project manager Paul Finch, who talks about the importance of retrofitting. Uh, Kira, my name is uh, Paul Finch. Um, I'm a project manager. I work mainly in uh, residential and light commercial space. Uh, my background was as a building engineer. I'm also a certified passive house tradesperson. Um, I tend to annoy people and um, I don't much like speaking in public, so I've done this for some time. Um, what I'm going to talk about tonight is uh, retrofitting. Um, oh, we're done. Blanked out straight away. There we are. Uh, what is it, why does it matter, and um, how we do it. Um, and we'll see if we can get some of that done tonight. Ah, there we are. So, um, in 2050, uh, 29 years from now, that's about my age. All right. Um, I understand from some figures that uh, Katie's team gave me, I don't know if they actually called the modelling team, but we call them the, mo- the modelling team, um, approximately 70% of the residential building stock in New Zealand will be standing, or will be the buildings that are standing today. Um, New Zealand uh, statistics um, indicate there are about 1.8 million dwellings currently standing. Uh, now, we're going to have... Um, growth and clearance, but for the sake of this presentation, let's just say that the same amount will be around in 2050. So in 2050, uh, about 1.25 million dwellings are going to be from 2020 or earlier. And this is going to be a similar position to other developed countries. So it's critical that in terms of reducing energy use and their greenhouse gas emission reductions, that deep retrofits are going to need to be carried out on existing stock. Um, Right, you can quote me on that, because I said it, okay? That's my quote. Everyone now needs to be an activist, right now. Not tomorrow, not in five years' time, right now. Renovate, uh, refurbish, rehabilitate. It's likely that if we um, shift our focus um, almost completely to the rejuvenation of existing buildings and have the reduction of energy use at the core of that focus, every project carried out will be a retrofit project. And they have to be, because we don't have any other choice. Um, if we think about um, retrofitting just in the residential sector, um, we can just consider things like uh, swapping out single to triple glazing, um, putting insulation in walls, roofs, anywhere you can fit it, and perhaps whipping out the old open fire to a wood fibre um, pellet equivalent. Um, in the commercial sector... Um, wrap up buildings and external insulation, put on new veneers, finish off with new glazed balconies. This uh, project um, I co-managed back in 1998 in Norway. 
three tower blocks, 10 storeys, 200 plus apartments. It was award winning. Um, but they didn't tell me at the time until I left the country. Um, I found out two years ago. Um, conventionally, such uh, refurbishment work is focused on a number of single step measures which overall improve the performance of a building, either uh, deliberately or unintentionally. Um, but there's generally little thought in promoting the improved performance, how it might be demonstrated or how it will benefit stakeholders, um, either immediately after the works or during the remaining life of the building. And the benefits of retrofit are unlikely to have been determined at the design stage. Um, and the influential assessment criteria upon which the project um, has progressed is generally cost versus asset value growth. This is just sort of standard retrofitting, just adding something that wasn't there before. Long-term benefits to occupiers or owners will initially be largely um, only perceived and found on subjective reasoning rather than as the consideration of demonstrable um, outputs from the setting of measurable targets. So although this project on the screen wasn't award-winning because the residents after 40 years could finally push their sofas back against the external walls without feeling cold, or they could sit out on their balcony comfortably in cold months without freezing, it won because the work was of high quality to budget and at the time it looked nice. So typical retrofits might result in a 10 to 25% reduction in energy use, but that's not enough. I've got no idea how this performs now, and, uh, but I do know it still looks nice. Um, in addition to the definition of retrofit, um, I've added by taking the whole building approach to achieve an improvement in energy efficiency towards near net zero energy demand. And now we're wanting to start focusing on performance and reducing energy use. Uh, this picture has been taken from Archetype's uh, website. Thank you, Tim, and the team down there, Dunedin. Um, they looked at uh, retrofitting an apartment uh, flat, I guess, or an apartment in a block. Um, and here the people have started going a bit more hardcore, stripping out plaster from external masonry walls, putting in new insulated um, uh, timber walls inside the envelope, airtightness membrane, up with the floor, more insulation, more membranes, and so on and so forth. Uh, whopped in some through-the-wall MVHR uh, to reduce moisture build-up and to warm the incoming fresh air. And uh, further along the residential line, um, Kainga Order have already retrofitted uh, 200 homes in the Hutt Valley, and they plan to retrofit 1,500 more in the next two years. And that's part of one of their kick-ass uh, performance-focused retrofit projects nationwide. Um, Deep retrofit in the commercial sector. This is uh, about 10 years old now. It's um, Ardangia House in Wellington. It's a Beaker project, 2009. Um, and they've uh, they basically added the things that were on the project before in, uh, in Oslo, um, but gone in infinitely further. Installed external uh, insulation and new veneer, high-performance glazing, solar shading, temperature and air quality sensors, uh, exhaust fan to aid ventilation, um, variable, variable uh, refrigerant flow comfort cooling design, and worked on the elimination of thermal bridges. So the whole performance of the entire building is considered, in this case, the performance analysed for optimisation during a retrofit. If you haven't checked out uh, Professor Johan Rockstam, go and check it out. Um, and uh, the final stage really was just looking at uh, Passifaust-style retrofitting, Enerfit. 
And one example here is uh, Piha House. They're looking to certify it this year. It's by Sang Architects, Daryl Sang and his team up in Auckland. And um, comes with the need to expect surprises and having to pay attention to a lot of details. And I'll just leave you on that note. Kira Koto, my name is Shay, and I'm the head of strategic partnerships at Tether Limited. Prior to Tether, I led the development of the environmental upgrade finance program in Australia. Tether provides hardware for building building for measuring building performance, and our devices are, are very easily installed. It can be done in 30 seconds. They run on batteries and do not rely on Wi-Fi connections um, to transmit data. So today I'm here to talk to you about PACT which is Property Assessed Climate Transformation. PACT is a loan, which is secured by a voluntary targeted rate on the property. It can be used by homeowners as well as businesses. The term of the loan can be up to 20 years and the interest is fixed for the duration of the loan. The loans range from a few thousand dollars to millions of dollars and the funding is provided by the private sector. It can support building owners and tenants too. PACT overcomes financial barriers that typically discourage um, investment in retrofits of existing buildings. The long-term tenure of the loan makes it makes the loan repayments easy, uh, and therefore it becomes a cash flow tool for the building owners. In particular, it could be used for healthy home upgrades, green retrofits or deep retrofits, as well as change of use for commercial buildings. Further to that, it can also be used for natural disaster preparedness, such as floods and hurricanes, bushfires, and earthquake strengthening. And last but not least, it can also be used for heritage building maintenance and compliance. Similar finance mechanisms are also under consideration in Europe, UK, Canada, and South Africa too. It is enabled by a tripartite agreement between a building owner, their local government, and a lender. Um, voluntary targeted rate programs are already in, uh, operating um, through Canterbury Pro programs and building retrofit programs in Auckland City. PACT is very much aligned to these programs and can be and can also be used for non-residential buildings. It also allows for a wider range of improvements so long as they deliver a healthier space and a more efficient building. And the funding is not limited to council budgets. I'd like to run you through a series of examples of projects that have been funded by similar finance mechanisms in Australia and in the US. Uh, first, we have a commercial building refurbishment. Um, this building was built in 1936. It's in Melbourne CBD. It, the building had aged and had poor neighbours rating. The building owners used bank loans and environmental upgrade finance, which is what PACT is. Um, and they were able to do deep retrofits and lift the neighbours rating to 3.5 stars which enabled them to source a long-term tenant. We, we work on a 15-year contract. The second one is for eco-laundry. So it's, it's a small business. Um, the building owners decided they wanted to upgrade all their washing machines and dryers for more efficient Tesla models. That upgrade is helping them save about $17,500 a year. Um, across from that, we've got Four Pillars, which is a well-known gin. Um, you know, they're exporting across the world. They decided to install a 67 kilowatt solar array um, on the roof to operate more sustainably. 
Um, they've also got vision for a $6 million upgrade for the site to become a very sustainable gin hub. Um, one of my favorites is a waste minimization project, which was undertaken by Booth Transport. So Booth is a very old transportation company, family owned in Australia. Um, on this particular site, they store milk because they transport milk across Australia and they store it in big silos. But once a day, they have to wash all the insides of the trucks in the silos um, and all that water contains a lot of protein. So what they did is they installed four swimming-sized pool worm farms uh, at the cost of $4 million. And those worm farms treat 120,000 kilolitres of water, and that gets put back into the irrigation system each year. Prior to this, that water had to be trucked down to Melbourne um, for treatment over there. And last one I want to talk about is called Residential Solar Program through PACE. So this is where the this type of funding originated in the US 10 years ago. Um, to date, for residential projects, you know, they have transacted for over $7.3 billion, and that is across 300,000 homes in the US. Commercial pay started a few years later, and to date they have transacted over $2 billion worth of building retrofit projects. And the biggest deal was signed earlier this month for a $89 million um, commercial building retrofit on Wall Streets. So from this, you can see that, you know, the usage is from very large businesses to small businesses, as well as homeowners too. So in the last six months, we have been undertaking a, a series of stakeholder engagement activities. Uh, we've written letters to the Minister for Local Government, as well as Minister for Housing. Um, the rationale for that is that um, under the current Local Government Rating Act, councils can put VTRs on council-funded projects, whereas for PACT, we're looking at the private sector to provide investment into these projects, and that would require some amendments to the Local Government Act. We've also sent a briefing paper to the Greens Party, the National Party, and the ACT Party as well, and I've been advised that it's been forwarded to the Minister for Building and Construction as well. How can you help? Um, I'd encourage you all to talk about this PACT to your peers, to your local governments, to your banks, and any projects. Um, for consultants in the room, if you're working on projects, you can identify you know, projects that could be suitable for this form of finance. Um, and please send me an email or give me a call. I'd be happy to talk more about it. The briefing paper that we sent to the government will also be available to anyone who's interested after this presentation tonight. And also, if anyone is interested in downloading those full case studies, I'll be more than happy to share the link from where they're available. Thank you very much for your time. Tina Koto Katoa, Ko Fiona Toku Ingoa. I'm an architect from Warren Architects and I also lead sustainability. And tonight I'm going to talk to you a bit about the work we've been doing and the context in which it sits. So in 2019, we witnessed and were part of global declarations of a climate and biodiversity emergency. Warren Architects made this climate commitment we cannot achieve it alone. There are three parts to the goal for design. Net zero, because we want to encourage on-site generation and certification. 50% more energy efficient, because we want to get to net zero through building efficiency first. And 40% less in body carbon, because research showed this was achievable 
without going to a full timber structure, which encourages all project typologies, products and material suppliers to come with us on this journey. I hope that our best work will far exceed this commitment. Tonight I'm going to share with you a few insights from our journey so far to do with measuring soft skills and driving industry change needed to meet these goals. We're rapidly moving from a design based on intuition and experience to data and insight-led design optimization. We need to be able to measure our emissions from our brief to our documentation. We've never had to do this before. And we, the, the tools to do it are slowly developing. To help us determine what good or even normal looks like, last year we partnered with a PhD candidate, Emily Newmarch. Emily analysed our design for mason bros on Auckland's waterfront. Completed in 2016, this building achieved a six-star green star boot rating for office, which is the highest rating, with a 5.5-star neighbours energy rating, which is out of six. So achieved really highly in terms of rating systems. Our engineer calculated that over its lifetime, this building saves approximately 50% of greenhouse gas emissions, which sounds fantastic. By the current tools, this is deemed world excellence and is really hard to actually beat. Emily's analysis found that this building had a 40 to 60% split on operational compared to embodied carbon, placing a greater importance on embodied carbon than a typical building due to its energy efficiency. Today, we understand to stop irreversible climate change in the next eight to 10 years, Reducing the total embodied carbon emissions, especially up front, is critical. When Mason Bros is assessed through this lens, it measures about double our goal, which is roughly international best practice per square metre. Which sounds bad, but it's not actually bad because it depends on the typology and the office building might be 40 storeys and this is three. So it gets really complicated quickly. Um, but the point is that this, when this building was designed, embodied carbon was not, on, was not a priority, although it was assessed as part of the Green Star assessment, but priorities need to look different today. <coughs> if this building were briefed today, this is what I would want you to ask. We need to have a clear goal and strategy, and we need to shake our assumptions. So let's look at a current project. On the right-hand side, I'm going to talk about that project. This is an office design where our brief was to see if we could make a timber structure feasible for a B-grade office building in Ototahi. We spoke to a contractor early to minimise the risk. They suggested, rather condescendingly, we should make the floors concrete for many logical reasons. The client was forced to defend the design team and explain what our brief was and why a low-carbon build was important to their organisation. We brought in a more progressive contractor for some insights, and the design team came up with a low-carbon, rational, and we think beautiful proposal. And we used the Naylor Love tool to demonstrate carbon sequestered in the structure. But in order to be funded by banks, the project needs a business case. The concept cost estimate for the business case is provided by QS whose job it is to put a value against the known as well as the unknown. The perceived unknown risk of timber construction in the market right now blew the business case out of the water in one foul swoop. If 
it weren't for an absolutely determined client, this project could have fallen over at this point. And many do. Despite the architects, engineers, contractors and client all going above and beyond, it is no guarantee of success yet. And this is because we're still operating within an ecosystem that defines success by cost, time and quality. We need to shift the whole construction ecosystem to adjust for a new value, carbon. This in itself isn't a technical challenge, rather an adaptive challenge. An adaptive challenge is achieved by overhauling people's priorities, beliefs and behaviours. It calls for productive conflict and tolerating loss as the whole system learns through experimentation and innovation. It won't be enough if we have legislation but don't provide education, financial incentives or address existing barriers. If we're not careful, it might even make it harder or more expensive to build houses. To accelerate system change, one of the most powerful things we can do is to fearlessly ask questions and work together. In summary, we need to design with more insight, we need to ask questions, we need to connect more, and tonight is a perfect example of that, and I'm thrilled to see you all here tonight. So come have a chat later if you'd like to know more. Thanks. Thanks, Jessica and Michelle, for inviting me to contribute to this event. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm an urban wellbeing researcher at... at uh, AUT's Architecture and Future Environment School and leader of a National Science Challenge Building Better Homes, Towns and Cities Urban Wellbeing Programme. We're talking briefly about this urban wellbeing research that focuses on developing transformative tools that aid holistic or social, cultural and ecological wellbeing. Particularly, I'll talk about how we're working with AUT's new architecture program to co-develop tools to help architecture students learn to design for the particular challenges and opportunities that we're facing now. So a few quick snapshots to set the context. We're already well into a climate change process with average global temperatures now up by one degree from pre-industrial levels. This elevation in temperature is very significant. Recent research has raised the possibility that even a 1.5 degree elevation in temperature may start to initiate tipping points that further fuel change. We're also now up to around 416 parts per million in atmospheric carbon dioxide, which drives climate and ocean heating and sea level rise. And climate change isn't the only challenge, obviously. We're also now in a sixth mass extinction event with wide-ranging biodiversity collapse. 
Biodiversity is the life and the life support system of the planet. And so this is just as much of an existential threat as climate change and global heating. Housing crises, obesity epidemics, which are linked to obesogenic built environments, and likely the current pandemic, are all linked with our current land use and building infrastructure systems and choices. The scale of these crises are global, and they're interlinked in complex ways. But the opportunity here is to emphasise holistic well-being or modi order, and actively design and build for socio-cultural ecological well-being. This is an opportunity that we can particularly engage with at an urban level and in our neighbourhoods. So what is, what is effective? In our urban wellbeing research, we're identifying a wide range of socio-cultural and ecological wellbeing strategies, and we're exploring how to land these on the ground in urban neighbourhoods. We need tools to help us understand and visualise different wellbeing strategies and how these can interrelate and, and create synergies. We're developing two visual tools, an urban data display and a holistic wellbeing compass that keeps us oriented towards wellbeing. The, the urban wellbeing data display takes city-level data on wellbeing and visualises it. The display is split into key domains, built environment, transport and ecological infrastructures, circular economy and connected communities. And the visualisation plots key indices against a range of, against a state of modi order or wellbeing or modi mate, ill health. Emphasis here is on transformative approaches, renewable zero carbon energy, ecologically regenerative land use, circular bioeconomy principles, connected communities, all in order to assess and further accelerate urban regeneration. We're also developing a holistic wellbeing compass that visualises the city as a complex whole. Again, we depict key urban wellbeing approaches or actions and domains built environment, transport and ecological infrastructures, circular economy and connected communities. With Huri Tiao, the Future Environments Architecture School, we've just started a process of co-developing a compass to help te teach architecture from a perspective of holistic well-being. We're emphasising an approach which always locates architecture within its neighbourhood and ecosystem. The aim is to help students to understand how to design zero-carbon living regenerative systems by providing key strategies or directions. For example, in the Kaina Order Built Environments domain, the ochre-coloured pie section, we highlight the importance of local renewable energy generation and storage as part of a building energy ecosystem. This overlaps with the Kori Ora Zero Carbon Active Transport Strategy, the Kaki Coloured Pie, which emphasises active and public transport along with zero emissions vehicles. The Green Whenua Order Ecological Infrastructure section emphasises the importance of urban ecological regeneration to store carbon and enhance biodiversity in a more resilient life support system. 
and also to improve the well-being of people via the biophilia effect. Research shows that people's well-being is measurably improved by proximity to green spaces and that disadvantaged children's resilience is particularly improved by access to nature. The Compass brings together global, local and global wellbeing approaches so that students always consider how their local choices can have global effects. Global wellbeing boundaries, the outermost circles, reference Johan Rockström's planetary boundaries idea, which emphasises the need to work within existing planetary cycles and capacities. Our local, urban and architectural actions in the centre need to occur within the circling planetary boundaries, within the carbon cycle, within ecological limits, for example. The compass emphasises the need for a just energy transition to renewable energy, a land use transition, which allows for ecological regeneration, and a materials transition to a circular bioeconomy. So to finish, this is a challenging time for the built environment industry and for cities, but it's also a time of great opportunity. Because of the complexities and interconnection of the challenges, we need to take a multi-pronged and holistic approach. And we need tools to understand and visualise well-being opportunities and urban interrelationships. This compass is one tool we're creating. We're about to begin using it with AUT's architecture school. We hope that this approach will assist architects of the near future to design ecologically regenerative, carbon negative, living buildings and cities. Thank you. Kia ora, Amanda. Thank you very much. And thank you to all our speakers on Zoom and in the room. Thank you all so much for being here. Uh, now, the speakers who are here in person have agreed to stay around for a few minutes afterwards. If you have any burning questions, please just go up, grab them and ask. Uh, part of the idea of coming in person tonight is so that local people get together with other local people. Uh, so in that vein too, I'd like to especially thank our Expo partners. Thank you all for being here early and setting up. And if you didn't, manage to connect with people who you want to, go over, maybe grab a card, um, say hello. And uh, yeah, I'd like to also thank our supporters and sponsors. And we have a snazzy slide for that. And um, thanks lastly, but most importantly to you all. Thank you so much for coming. We're absolutely delighted that you made it. We seem to have a positive genius for choosing the worst weather to schedule our events. We've already had to cancel one in the series. Um, just briefly, I would like to invite you now to think about the change that has been discussed. Perhaps you're an industry professional. Maybe you own a building. Maybe you're a landlord. Maybe you're all three. Or maybe you're a citizen. Well, all of us are citizens. And change at the pace and scale we need will take us being engaged in local democracy, not just at elections, but between elections, working together and recognising how interconnected we all are. So what would enable you to be part of that transformation? 
Well, we hope you'll keep in touch with us. Uh, we're on social media in all the usual places, and we have a newsletter that does come out from time to time, and we will be spend, sending out a special issue after this to follow up with some links that I hope you'll find interesting. Uh, next, Christchurch cons Conservation Towards 2020. 2030, sorry. Christchurch Conversation Towards 2030. I think I made that up. Anyway, I'm regretting that. Is, uh, our next one is on Sunday the 8th of August. So Sunday the 8th of August, and we will be asking, can Christchurch be a zero-waste city? We'd like to see you there. Meanwhile, go well. Ka kite anō. This has been part three of Building for the Future, the first event in the Christchurch Conversations Towards 2030 special series on how to achieve the city's 2030 climate targets. Many thanks to Te Putahi Centre for Architecture and City Making for kindly sharing this recording. Podcasts of this series can be found on the Plains FM website. Search for Christchurch Conversations. Conversations.